In late 1961, a shiny new microcomputer, the PDP-1, made by DEC, was installed on the second floor of Building 26, the location of the MIT Electrical Engineering Department. As with all technology, the students learning from it were working on new ways to get the most out of it. Three students decided to work on one project that would meet some simple criteria. They wanted to make a program that functioned equally well as an entertainment experience for players and as a demonstration for spectators while using as much of the computer's resources as possible. This project would become one of the most influential video games of all time, Space War, created for this PDP-1 in 1962. Later on in 2007, Space War would be named to a list of the 10 most important video games of all time, the basis of which formed the start of the game canon at the Library of Congress. Today we're going to be taking a look back at Space War, the PDP-1, the game canon, the Library of Congress, gamepads, hacking culture. This was an influential moment in history and we're going to talk about all of it. So stick around for an early video game history lesson as we take another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Welcome one, welcome all to the 31st episode of our Video Game Nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we take a look back at one game that was released somewhere during the current week in gaming history, kind of, sort of, and we talk about it. In doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it gave to the world, what it took from the world, or something new about the world around it. My name is David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who fancies himself a hacker because he figured out the Wi-Fi password to the pizza shop down the street. My brother, Rob Casson. Rob, how's the local pizza scene these days? Well, Dave, cheesy as always, much <laughs> like my jokes. <laughs> You know, no one would believe us if I told him we don't write this ahead of time, because stuff like that just feels like we do. <laughs> well, hey, I did. You know, it's true what I said. My, my jokes are cheesy, as is the pizza. Oh, and, you know, just like Chester said, it ain't easy being cheesy. That is indeed. Is is that dude even still around anymore? I, mm, I, I don't know. I don't know. Chester, if you're out yes, there, hit, yes. hit us up. I see him on my bag right now for the hot flaming hot Cheetos. <laughs> That's not what I meant, but okay. I don't think we've actually really gotten a chance to hang out or talk since we last recorded, have we? Uh, no, no, that's correct. That is correct. How you been? I've been well. Uh, you know, just plugging and chugging away. How about yourself? Good, good. What you playing this? What 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 have you played this week? Um, mostly RuneScape. Little bit of a uh, very small amount of Tarkov and uh, also small amount of Apex. Apex, huh? Yeah, got some friends uh, from college who I started playing with the other night and uh, had some fun. So, is that why I got a random Apex invite the other day? Was it one of you, was it you and your friends playing? No, that was not from me. Hmm. 
I, 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 I did. I got a random Apex invite from someone I don't play with regularly, so I don't really know who they are. Yeah, I don't know. Awesome. Apex. Uh, how is Apex these days? Is it better? I, uh, I guess. I don't really know. I never really played it in the beginning. So Is it, I, is it good? Are you enjoying it? <clears throat> it's fun with friends. I can't play solo. That's really infuriating to me, and I don't like playing with randoms because it's just who I am this week. Yeah, in the grass next to the mausoleum. Anywho, um, so yeah, I don't really get to play without friends, so I don't get to play a whole lot because the people I normally play with aren't always on. So, I mean, when I get to play with them, it's fun, but we just kind of goof off and don't really care how we do. If we lose, we lose. You know, it's just a game. Absolutely. Ain't like Rocket League. It ain't life. No, it ain't life at all. No, 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 no. That's for sure. Well, Rob, today we're gonna talk early video game history. And I mean early video game history. It's going to be a lot of talk about probably technology and games and and a bit of culture that I'm going to I'm going to go on a limb here and say that a large majority of our listening audience probably won't have a basis of Uh, truth be told, you know, if if I never took the time to study video game history I wouldn't have heard of probably any of the stuff we're going to talk about today, which is cool because it's kind of uh, it's neat to be able to fill in. I mean, literally, what's a black it's a black hole of knowledge for a lot of people. You, you know what I mean? Absolutely, Dave. Knowledge. Yeah, I know. Some people like it. Some people don't. But we definitely try to teach people something around here. So. And I'm guessing if you've stuck around this long, you like learning stuff because that's what we're about. We're all about learning things. Rob, when you took your uh, e- electrical engineering, did they did you ever have to visit the early history of computing and any of those? Did they make you take like a computer science deal or anything like that? I mean, I had to learn basics of programming with Java, but I didn't like teach us the history of computers. I mean, we, we did de- definitely talk about like Murphy's law and things of that nature and like the development of the processing units, chips, transistors getting smaller and smaller, allowing more complex things we put on a small space, but having to worry about heat dissipation. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's covered, but I, I, I guess depends more on what precisely you're looking for. I mean, there were computers before there were transistors, you know? That that's just the honest truth of it. There are computers before that. That the transistor was a, uh, uh, or is it capacitor? No, it's transistor. One of those was a uh, was the invention allowed us to have microcomputers. But there were computers Trans- before we had. Yeah, there were there were computers before we had microcomputers. Right. Um, giant like warehouse. You know, there was one com- one computer in the mix that was what three thousand three thousand square feet. Which is like twice the size of my house. Is is this one computer took up the space? The space, you know? Yeah, a lot of the early stuff was was super 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 cool. Um, so the game I want to look at today, I'm going to start. It, it, it's a it's a title called Space War, and we're going to get into it. I, I am going to start from the beginning, but the one thing I want to talk about first is the game Canon. So. Rob, do you know what the function of the Library of Congress is? One more time. 
The function of the Library of Congress. Is that to document the history of the United States? It's not just the United States, but that's essentially the notion of it. Um, it is, it's a research library that officially serves the United States Congress, and it's the, by notion, de facto National Library of the United States. It's actually the oldest federal cultural institution in the U.S., and it's one of the largest libraries in the world. Its notion is to document and collect as many cultural and I guess information, because a lot of libraries information, right? Uh, cultural and informational inf- and, and, and information as possible is, is, is it. Why that's important is because there are more, there is more to the game, to the Library of Congress than just uh, books. There's a film portion to the Library of Congress. And back in 2000, Seven. I'm not. If I'm not mistaken, they started a game canon, which is basically where they started to to collect copies and keep copies of digital games that have a cultural significance and a historical significance. So somewhere in our Library of Congress are actually video games. Why? Why I want to bring this up is because the game canon started, like I said, back in I, I believe it's 2007. And there were 10 video games on it in the initial game canon. And these are 10 games that are each considered to represent the beginning of a genre that is still viable in the video game industry. So they, they took they took 10 games and said, okay, these are the cultural basis for what's still out there. And I want to talk for a moment about those 10 games because Space War is one of those games just um, i know there's a, a million and one games but we've talked about some of these so if the basis was that these are 10 games that are considered to represent the beginning of a, a vital genre what are some other games that you can guess are on are on the on the game canon you have nine others you won't get e. them all not etip yeah <laughs> et what genre is that the the landfill genre exactly oh my god oh what are some other games we talked about that we've said you know these games define a genre well i would have to say doom you nailed one right on the head good job um let's see pac-man no not pac-man i'll tell you that we've only there are two more games on the list that we have talked about, one of which we did a specific episode on. I don't believe any of the others are, have ever come up, so I won't hold you to it. So so we're looking at genres here. We're looking at genres, a game that, that's considered mm. to represent the beginning of a genre. And I don't agree with beginning of a genre, because in these cases... They may not have been the beginning, but they were the games that cemented them. They were the games that cemented them in. So. Oh, well, let's see. There's 4X, so probably Civ. You nailed your two for two, bro. Well, actually, I'm two for four. That's true. But uh, halfway there or something. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. uh, really, only, really, tough. only, yeah, only one more game on here. We've made, we've had a chance to talk about, and we talked about it because we did an episode on it. it this person made a very big game that you enjoy very much that we talked about recently that a lot of people don't think is a game game. If that gives you a hint, the Sims. Yes, but it's not the Sims. What else did uh, Wright make? Uh, um, Where'd the Sims come from? Was it Sim city? It is. Yeah. Sim city is the other one. Awesome. I'll give you another hint. Probably the most simple game the most popular game, the game that's been ported to more systems than anything else, uh, and it's a puzzle game of sorts. What puzzle game do you think has been ported to more more platforms than any game in history? Professor Layton. Mm, good answer. But no, I wish Professor Layton would come to more platforms. Hmm. Puzzle. Can I? I mean, what what kind of puzzle? Like a, a puzzle or like? I mean, it's it, it it's a puzzle genre. It's a it's a it's a puzzle type game where you put pieces together. Is it shapes made of blocks? <laughs> it is shapes made of blocks. Yes. Ah, Tetris. Mm-hmm. All right. So we got Space War. We got Tetris. We got SimCity. We got Civ. And we got Doom. I will fill in some blanks for you. Uh, Star Raiders, uh, which we've never talked about. Zork which we've never really talked about. Zork was the very first. I love Zork. Zork was a text game, one of the early popular text games. Super Mario Bros. 3 is part of the canon. Three? Why three? I... That's a great question. I was wondering that, too, and I don't know the answer to that. I think three was, for reasons, a very... It, it was very much a genre-defining you know, platforming and level-choosing and, and power-ups, and there are a lot of elements in that genre that kind of started uh, with Super Mario Bros. 3, but you could easily trace it back to Super Mario Brothers and then even trace that back even further. You know what I mean? Yeah, fair enough. The Warcraft series. Oh, should have got that one. And on the sports side, it was the sensible world of soccer, which I don't... I, 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 the what? I, is that sensible world of soccer? I'm not familiar with that one. <laughs> FIFA must have really swept it under the rug. I think it was. The, well, I don't think I'll tell you it's a precursor to it's a precursor to that. So it's an early, early sports game. Are we sure it's not the sensible world of soccer four? <laughs> Why four? I, I mean, Super Mario Brothers three. I mean, maybe the fourth one introduced a new mechanic of like actually being able to know. play well uh, or something. I don't know. Yeah. So. Video games, by their original definition, their purely technical definition, would be pretty much disqualified nowadays. Luckily, we've kind of gotten past that. And video games nowadays are pretty much any game played on hardware that has electronic logic circuits that we can interact with that outputs what we do to a screen. Pretty, pretty generic nowadays. But I'll tell you that even before we had what we would consider video games, we had interactive electronic games. And the earliest interactive electronic game that we can find only really existed in patent form and maybe a prototype. It was back way back in 1947, way back in 1947. Um, and this was called a cathode ray tube amusement device. And so basically what it was is it was just a, a ray tube uh And this was all analog. That's what amazes me, Rob, is that this was analog, right? So basically, you had a CRT screen in front of you, 
and it had a spot that was on this the uh, and it was an oscilloscope screen. So think like radar screen in movies, you know, doop doop doop. You know what I'm talking about? Yep, sure do. It had a beam spot on it, and you would have to overlay the screen with like a a plastic you know plastic graphic. And basically, there was a a spot like an airplane on the graphic, and you would use knobs on it to kind of maneuver your beam to where the spot was, like the the airplane was. And when the when you got to where the airplane was, the beam would basically defocus, which made it go blurry and spread out wider, which was like the indication of of a, an explosion on the airplane. Right? There wasn't right. any there wasn't anything that that really recorded score or did anything like that. It was it was just it, it was these. You you had these you 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 hit a spot, you defocused, and that was it. You know, they were they were trying to make something that could be used on TVs, um, but they never really got anywhere with that. So it, it was nineteen forty seven. It was really, you know, really early. It was never manufactured. It was never marketed to the public. And so it really gets discontinued because it, it, it it's not considered a video game because it didn't run on a computing device, right? It was purely analog. And it also had no effect on the future video game industry. I just think it's fascinating that we had electronic... Some, someone was trying to make an electronic game device of some kind as early as 1947. Uh, that just fascinates me, you know? It is really surprising. It's 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 really early. Um, just like when we talked about VR, you know, the, the early history of computing and games was really developed in universities and labs and, and, and for military purposes and stuff like that. We see a lot of the same stuff. The earliest known publicly demonstrated electronic game came three years earlier in 1950. Okay. So in 1950, a computer was created called Birdie the Brain, and that name cracks me up every time I see Birdie the Brain. Um, it's considered an early computer game. It's one of the earliest in the history of video games. It was a 13-foot-tall computer that allowed uh, exhibition attendees because it was created for the 1950 Canadian National Exhibition. So it's a 13-foot-tall computer that allowed attendees to play a game of, of tic-tac-toe against an artificial intelligence, right? Um, basically, the player would, would sit in front of a lit keypad that looked like a 3x3 three three grid, and they would hit the button, and it'd put a zero there, and then the computer would do an X and vice versa, um, and, and they would go back and forth, you know? This was the first computer game to have any sort of visual display, and so, really, this is one of the earliest video games that we know of, and it was certainly the first to be showcased to people anywhere, period. The Canadian National Exhibition lasted for, I don't know, two weeks, and after two weeks, uh, the machine was disassembled, and, and that's it. That, that, was, that was it. We have, some, we have some pictures of it, but we really don't, don't have any, we, we really don't have anything else of it. But it's funny because Birdie the Brain. Birdie the Brain, Rob, the first computer game to feature a visual display of any sports or sorts. Sports? Why did I say sports? Because you're still thinking about Splendid Soccer 4 or whatever the <laughs> hell it was. 
<laughs> I know. Splendid sucker. Nearly a year later, we got the Nimrod computer. The Nimrod computer was an early computer that was custom built to play Nim. Do you know what the game Nim, Nim is at all? Uh, does it have something to do with a rod? Oh, well, I mean, the computer's the Nimrod, and we use the name Nimrod now. The game Nim is basically, it's a mathematical game of strategy where player two players take turns removing objects from distinct heaps or piles. Each turn, a player has to remove one object, and they, they, can, they have to remove at least one object, but they may remove any number of objects provided they come from the same heap or pile. Essentially, what you're doing is you're trying to be the the the, the person who avoids taking the last object or last or the, the the last object or to take the last object. You can play it either way. It's weird. Anyway, Nim's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Nimrod and not my co-host. We're actually talking about the computer. <laughs> Do you like how I stuck that in there? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, that's probably what the first computer sounded like too, just so you know. That's pretty good. Good job. Nimrod played Nim, but it used light bulbs instead of a screen with real-time visual graphics. And so some people don't really consider it one of the early video games, but it is a game that was played on a computer back in 1951, which is kind of cool. And we talked we I like talking about big computers. So this computer was 12 feet by nine feet by five feet. This huge, huge computer, again, built for an exhibition so people could play Nim against computers. Because that was the thing. No one really, these were, this was early computers. People, people were still trying to figure out like uses for it. And games were still a super early thing that they were thinking of. Right? Right. 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 It was about the same time that there were non-visual games being developed at various research computer labs. Christopher Strachey about this time developed a game of checkers for the pilot ACE computer at the British National Physical Laboratory. What's unique about this is that the pilot ACE was a general purpose computer. And so this game of, uh, and they called it Droughts, not Checkers. Um, this game was the first known computer game to be created for a general purpose computer, whereas everything we talked about prior to this was a machine made specifically for the game, like Birdie the Brain, for instance. About the same year, the first game of chess was written for a Ferranti Mark I computer, which is one of the earliest commercially available computers. What's unique about the first game of chess was it wasn't even powerful enough to play a full game in chess. It could only do what they call mate and two problems, which are very limited games of chess. <laughs> um, so there wasn't a whole lot that we could do with early early computers and games but we were we were we were cruising along. We were cruising along here. Um, it really wouldn't be until 1958 that we got the next significant jump in video game history. And in 1958, we got uh, what's called tennis for two. I mean, I guess it goes without saying. What kind of what kind of game do you think we have here, Rob? I'm gonna guess it's a first person shooter, Dave. Yeah, yeah, definitely a first person shooter. For how how many players, man? Uh, I'm gonna say about 32. Yep, 32. Very good. Yeah, it's really amazing how little far we've come since 1958. Then you know what I mean? Yeah, not very far at all. We're only <laughs> up to like 33 or something. Oh. So in 1958, a designer called William Higginbotham made a game called Tennis for Two. 
And basically, the Brookhaven National Lab would have, again, another exhibition. And all they really had at the time was was exhibits that would show peaceful uses of atomic atomic power, because that's what Brookhaven was working on, you know? And so Hickenbotham wanted to create something that would give exhibitionists something something else to do. And so his idea was to use the analog computers and the oscilloscopes and such to create an exhibit that people could play. And so he basically built Tennis for Two. When I say oscilloscope, do you, do you, can you visualize what an oscilloscope is? You use them all the time, don't you? Yeah. I, even uh, still, even still. I, I, I use them extensively in college during my degree learning. That's right. You did. What do you use oscilloscopes for in your stuff? We use them to, uh, you know, check frequencies. Can you imagine playing a video game on one? Um, it, it was like a video game trying to get it set up. <laughs> I'm telling you, those things are. Uh... Well, so tennis for two basically had a flat, like the way it was created. There's, there's a flat line across the middle of the screen you know, which was your ground and then a little light in the middle that was your net. And then you basically just bounced a ball back and forth. You know, he had two aluminum controllers that were set up here and people lined up for day people. It was a three day exhibition and thousands of people lined up to play this. What's unique about tennis for two is that it's literally the first computer game we know of that was created purely as an entertainment product and not for academic research or for promoting the technology that it went into it, you know? Um, and I, I think that's kind of cool. The very first entertaining video game was tennis. You know, in the beginning, it was really simple. Later, they would upgrade the game to simulate different levels of gravity. So you could you could play tennis with the gravity of the moon or the gravity of Jupiter. So there were a lot of fun stuff that you could do. And it lasted for a couple of years, but after 1959, uh, the lab decided they wanted to use its components for other things. So they dissembled it. A lot of the early stuff they dissembled. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And depending on your, your actual definition of, of video games, this could literally be the first game. I, I don't know. There's a lot of, a lot of confusion over that kind of stuff, uh, which was the first game. There were various computer games that were being run uh, alongside this. You know, there was we got my, we started to get smaller computers, more alongside the microcomputers not too long afterwards in the in the early 60s. Actually, we started to get transistor based computers. That's what I want to talk about. We started to get transistor based computers. And so we started to get MIDI computers. And and so all these universities that were getting these computers would make games. You know, you see Tic-Tac-Toe pop up. There was a Mouse in the Maze game pop up. Um, in 1958, there were various business, business management simulation games. It's said that in 1961, there were over 89 different business simulation games in use, each of which had different various graphical capabilities. Despite this, despite us knowing that in 1961, we had 89 different business games, at this point, there was no no inkling, no even notion of a commercial video game industry. You know, at this point, almost all games had been developed on a single machine for specific purposes. 
And the simulation games that created were, were not really designed to be commercial or for entertainment. It would be a few years later that we would get Space War. In late 1961, they installed a PDP-1 mini computer on the second floor of Building 26, which was the MIT Electrical Engineering Department. And this computer, early computer, uh, had a punch tape reader. Basically, the, the games were programmed on punch cards, which I think is really cool. And uh, it had uh, inputs from panel switches, and it had a CRT display that it could input. And students were finding all sorts of fun ways to do it. Well, three students decided that they wanted to make some kind of two-dimensional maneuvering sort of thing. And so they decided that the obvious thing to do with it would be spaceships. And so they created Space War. So basically in Space War, you have two spaceships. One's called the Needle, one's called the Wedge. And they're put on opposite corners with a star like rotating in the middle. And they have to maneuver around the star on basically a 2D plane in the gravity well of the star. It's like a star field. And they, sh they fire torpedoes at one another. That's it. It's a really simple game. It's 1962, people. <laughs> it's not going to be complex. But you can kind of think of it, the, 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 probably the game that most of us are going to know that bears the most influence is Asteroids. Rob, have you spent much time playing Asteroids? I haven't spent much time playing it, although I am quite familiar with the game. Do you know why you're familiar with the game? Um, because Dad played it a lot. There you go. Yeah, that was our <laughs> dance. That was our dance favorite game. Yeah, no, I Galaga too. You know. Yeah, I know. Ask mom I... all about the trip to the Smokies. Oh, they had him in your guys's uh, cabin. She, he drove mom insane. <laughs> yeah, I remember growing up that our dad's favorite game was Asteroids, and and realistically, uh, Space War is incredibly similar to Asteroids, except there's no asteroids coming out of you know floating through there. It's two spaceships circling a, a, a star in the middle, trying to shoot each other. Um, you know, initially. All they would use to control the game were like front panel switches on the computer. And the, it was like four switches for each player, but they were right next to each other. And the location of the switches kind of left one player off to one side, one player off the other. And it was it was really awkward. And so to alleviate these, these problems, one of the early one of the programmers of the game created this detached control device, which was basically a, a game pad. It had a switch for turning left and right. It had another switch that was forward thrust or what they had called hyperspace. And there was a button for torpe launching torpedoes. And it's funny, too, because he said that they designed the gamepad so the button was silent because they didn't want the other player to have a warning that there was there was a torpedo being fired. <laughs> so nice. But it's really interesting because we're we're back here. 1961-62. One of the literally one of the first video games, to, depending on your definition of it, because um, this is one of the earliest one that, that literally fits the definition. And we already had a game pad. And I think that's really funny because we don't think of early gaming as game pads in any like we I, I don't. When you think of early video gaming, do you think of game pads at all? 
I do not know. No, what what were the, all the early video game systems? What did they use to control things? Joystick. Joystick. Yeah. By the time by the time video games became main for mainstream, they were using joysticks. But this very first one, that the this early one, so so long ago, actually had a gamepad. And for whatever reason, that cracks me up. Yeah. So I mean, we had Space War. This little computer game for two players on a, on a PDP one, and 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 that was that 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 was it. You know, they wanted to create a game that was, they wanted to create a game that would show off like all these features of one of the first microcomputers, and so they made a space game that that that's that's super important. Do you know why it's super important? Mm, not entirely sure, Dave. Why is that? 1971, eight, nine years later, we got Galaxy Game. Galaxy Game is the first coin-operated video game. Basically, Galaxy Game is just an expanded version of Space War. It's got two spaceships, the Needle and the Wedge. They're engaged in a dogfight while maneuvering the gravity well of a star, and both are controlled by human players. And, and so this is the first coin operated arcade that we know of which is basically just space war put into a coin operated system our our earliest video games the ones that started this whole revolution came, came from space war i don't know any other way to put it i, I you know, i can't talk it up anymore i want i want to put it there so space war space war and it's funny because by the time this came out their the first prototype of Galaxy game was built on a PDP eleven. We started out making the game on a PDP one, and and their prototype their prototype was housed in a PDP eleven. By the time they installed their first prototype, they had spent about sixty five thousand dollars just to put this into perspective, which in more modern money is is over four hundred thousand wow. dollars. Think about that. The first prototype coin op game cost cost these two kids i don't know if they were kids cost these two guys over four hundred thousand dollars <laughs> wow that's uh, a lot the the first one is still around it was restored and um spent it so it was around and i don't know about the first prototype it might be the second prototype but uh it stayed at stanford because where it was made for a long time it died in the 70s and then it was restored in the 90s and then it got moved to the computer history museum in the year 2000 so that first one is still around somewhere but it had competition so it, computer space it had a competitor in computer space and so computer space was another derivative of space war it's computer space has the basically honor of being the first arcade video game in the traditional sense and also it was the first commercially available video game there was another pair of guys and this was nolan bushnell and ted dabney and, and bushnell would go on to create atari so bushnell is super important and they were looking to do the same thing the other guys who created galaxy space did right they wanted to make a, a basically arcade version of space war but they were running into the problem where they couldn't find an economical way to build this machine around a mini computer. I mean, let's be honest, the other guys spent $400,000 to make their prototype machine, right? 
Right. These guys wanted to make a, a more viable one. And so basically their idea was that instead of using a mini computer to run this, they thought of replacing the central computer with custom designed hardware design created just to run the game. And so basically like the, the cost of theirs went from the, the $65,000 that the other guys were looking to, I think it's roughly about a thousand dollars a machine. And, and so suddenly we had a, you know, a, a machine that could be built that was cost effective and could be mass produced. And so they did it. And so we have Computer Space, which is literally the first arcade game. Have you ever heard of Computer Space before? Uh, I have not. Yeah. So what's the first on the same note? What do you what's the first arcade game like that you can think of the earliest arcade title that you can think of? Uh, think of early games. What do you think? Did, what do you No, what, Hold on. I was going to ask a damn question. Ooh, okay. Does. I don't know if the original title, I don't actually know what the title was called, but the, the Mario King Kong or Don, Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong? Kong? No, Donkey Kong. Did that, was... No, was that before or after Pac-Man? Because those are the two. After. It was after. So Pac-Man, I mean, I mean, I guess, and Asteroids and Galaga, but yeah. I, I don't know if any of them are earlier no, than the others. No, they are. They are. You're missing one really, really early one. And I, I do think that when I tell you what it is, it's going to be like a facepalm moment. Pong. There you go. Yeah. Yep, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. I, I know it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I when I think of Pong, though, I don't really think arcade. I think Atari. I know. I, I know. I, I absolutely agree with that. When they made Computer Space, they made it under the title like Syzygy Engineering. And... They they basically the next year they they left this company or they reformed the company as Atari as they launched Pong in 1972 and that was that that's kind of when they blew up was Pong and, and started to to really really get into it. I mean let's let's think this was the first arcade game the first commercially available ar- arcade game it only sold about 1500 units it wasn't that popular and obviously we don't still have games called space war computer space but we still have pong and we still have i mean guess i guess asteroids right yeah yeah i guess we have asteroids you can actually go and play it's if you just google space war there's a million and one emulators like java written programs that emulate the pdp1 it's not that hard to emulate that have space war on it but yeah that is that's kind of the early history of of video games up until up until Space War and a little bit past. So Space War has a lot of a lot of significance, you know, a, a lot of significance in video game history, which is why it's in the game canon, because it's the game that literally there are early the very first arcade machines were, I don't know, copying, right? Right. Copying. I want to go back though because the um the Space War was on the PDP1, a really early microcomputer and this PDP1 was is noted for another reason. So I kind of want to talk about the intersection where of of where you know Space War and everything came into it. 
The PDP-1 is very much known for being the computer that helped cement the uh, and develop early hacker culture. So I want to take a few moments to talk about hacker culture because I don't I don't think that that's something that people talk about. And I, I do think in a lot of ways it's very much intertwined with computers, which are intertwined with video games. I think as a, a cultural phenomenon, everything is all kind of tied together. It all started here with the PDP-1. And so I kind of want to, like I said, I, wa- I want to look back at that that intersection. Um, Rob, what what is hacker culture to you? Uh, that, that, I, that's such a difficult question. <laughs> no, I know. What do you think a hacker is? <clears throat> I mean, a hacker is someone who manipulates codes and uh, like the weak link in the armor, but it looks for flaws in codes to gain access to systems and manipulate them in some way. This can be malicious in intent, or it could be for the sake of improving the systems. You know, there are people who are paid to do that to help protect, but it's just people who who find these exploitations and uh, exploit them, obviously. Find exploitations in codes and manipulate the... get into the system and manipulate it based on... So you ascribe to the notion that a hacker is someone that is more of a security breaker? I mean, yeah, I suppose it's simple terms, that is. I don't necessarily think it's entirely security-based, because you can, I mean, hack anything. You can make modifications to anything, and it's not always a security thing. You could be hacking your kid's, you know, little go-kart to go faster. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. So hacker culture itself makes a, a very strong distinction between hackers and what they call crackers. And what the public face of hacking in is typically what a cracker is, and that's the security breaker, where there are like white hat hackers or good crackers who do exactly what you said. They use their computer skills and knowledge to learn about how networks and systems work. They discover and they fix security holes. And then there are evil crackers who use the our black hat hackers who use the same skills to author harmful harmful software like viruses. You know, or they illegally infiltrate systems with the intention of doing harm. Also, the ones who, you know, use their skills to illegally obtain digital information. Those are all um, evil crackers. Those are all evil crackers. It's kind of funny to say crackers, isn't it? Oh, man. I, you know, someone at work today showed me a, uh, a guy, a redneck guy down here who does these funny cooking ish videos called the stale cracker. And so I had the stale cracker stuck in my head as we were talking about it. So nice. But the hacker culture is basically a subculture of individuals who enjoy the intellectual challenge of creatively overcoming limitations of systems to achieve novel, a.k.a. better or clever outcomes. So you're not wrong when you're talking about hacking a, a, a go-kart to go faster. I think that's. I would think that that's right in line with what the hacker culture wants to be known for. I, I That's it, period. I would think that it's really known for, you know. But this culture started way back in MIT in the 1960s, very much here on the PDP-1. And it was originally these guys who, you know, loved programming and, and wanted to make programs as good as they could be and wanted to do something that was different or more exciting and, and trying to squeeze as much out of these computers as everything. And the ha- hacker culture that started way back here at MIT in the sixties 
there were there there's they have some ethics and i just kind of want to briefly touch on on the ethics of the hacker culture right and so hacker attitudes they believe that access to computers or anything that might teach you something about the way the world works should be unlimited in total they feel that all information should be free they feel that hackers should be judged by their hacking and not other criteria like degrees, age, race, position. Nothing else matters but your skill. Hackers believe that you can create art and beauty on a computer. And hackers believe that computers can change your life for the better. Hacker ethics are you know, all about sharing and openness and collaboration and just being hands-on with all that stuff, you know? And I, I, I would argue that a lot of the internet itself, some of the things that we take for granted are, are really based out of this, all these hacker ethics, this hacker culture, right? Right. Things like Wikipedia, you know, all information should be free. We're all about sharing and openness and collaboration and engaging in hands-on like that, like that's, that's hackers in a, in a nutshell. So it's really funny. I guess why I like to do these little history lessons, honestly, the the first electronic device was 1947, right? That's 70, uh, how many years? 74? 74 years. Am I right? My math? I'm not crazy. 74? Oh, uh, sure. So I'll, think let, I'll let everyone else uh... be a judge of how bad my math is. Yep. <clears throat> That's my plan. <laughs> think how far we've come since then. I mean, we have computers in everything we have computers that we talk to you know we have computers in wristwatches we have a phone the original computers took up warehouses and we 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 communicate on a phone that's there were there were there were there were tubes there were single tubes needed to run that computer that were 10 times more than that they were much bigger than the phone that we that that we run Computers bring us TV because computers bring us information and computers bring us music. We, we have access to all this stuff at, at, the, at our fingertips. We've come that far in 60, 70 years, basically. You know, it's just, pretty crazy when you think about it. Well, we are thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Everyone else is just going to roll their eyes. Oh, there goes Dave on a tangent again. Uh, but. I just think it's awesome to think how far we've come. And also sometimes it's sad to think about how far we haven't come. So as part of my research, I found a television show from 1983 called the computer Chronicles. And they were talking about mini computers. And one of the things they were doing is they were showcasing uh, HP 103 or I, I, it was an early HP personal computer. It's one of the earlier uh, PCs. And they were touting features on it like touchscreen. This was pre-mouse era. And so they they basically used their finger on the screen because touchscreens have been around forever because they were used on terminal, like computer terminals, you know, you know, com- commercially and so on and so forth. And so like they're talking up, they're talking up, you know, the touchscreen and, 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 and float computing and parallel computing they're talking about. And these are, these are still concepts that were like, we're in the middle of, you know what I mean? Like touchscreen devices are still a thing for us. And parallel computing is something that we're still getting a grasp on 
because it's the basis for a lot of the way we're looking at computing with uh, multiple cores and stuff like that. And 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 it's just we jumped so fast for so long. And while we've come so far, we also haven't at the same time, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make. Well, Rob, what else you got? Anything that you want me to touch base in there or that I forgot or can elaborate on or or anything, you know, talk while we talked a little bit about early video game stuff? No, Dave, I think everyone's well on their way to bed by now. Yeah, I know. I'd like to be, too. (laughs) Oh, my. Oh, all right. Well, you know, I think this is a good point to move on to our gaming question of the week. And uh, I wanted to spend some time talking about your earliest video game memory. So out of everything, what is your earliest memory of playing a video game? And I think we've touched on this before. So people that have been listening to us from the very beginning, because coincidentally, my earliest video game memory was a game that came out during our first episode. So I briefly touched on it. So we may have talked about some of this, but I'm going to talk about it again and expand on it. Well, I am sure that my answer changes every time because I'm so indecisive. I want my memory are just kind of come and go. But uh, the two that I have that I'm not really sure which is first, they're just kind of concurrent in my brain, is I remember watching you and Jeremy play through Final Fantasy VII and, Mm -hmm. you know, the the train yard. And I remember trying it myself and having difficulty on the first Scorpion boss. Yeah, the first Scorpion boss. Yeah, that was pretty, pretty hard for me as a kid. Um, And then the other one is playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time with you. And uh, many times we spent trying to just get through that. (laughs) We played. Yeah, we did. Turtles in Time on the Super Nintendo. Oh, yeah. A lot. That was a sweet game. That was a really sweet game. I I like those early beat em up Ninja Turtle games. Absolutely. They were a lot of fun. I have a lot of muddled video game memories all over the place. I I, I still think the earliest one I talked about in the beginning was I remember when the first Nintendo was brought into our house and I remember walking into our parents' bedroom because they hid it in their bedroom and someone was playing baseball. I remember sneaking in when they weren't around to play baseball on the Nintendo Entertainment System. It didn't last. It didn't last in the room for very long. It got moved to a more family spot where we could play. So when we bought it, it was the one that had the light gun and it had the running pad. Have you ever seen the Nintendo running pad? Yeah, I remember when we still had it here. It didn't work by the time I got to see it, but yeah. uh, I definitely remember trying to get it to work. Yeah, so we would track play- and field. Yep. So we would play duck hunt and we would play track and field running on that stupid pad. And then there were just so many other things that were brought in the house. There was a Pong table brought in the house at one point. There were early computers. You know, I I had early Atari that I would play. um, I got all sorts of games on. I remember going over to uncle or one of our uncle's houses and he had an Atari computer and I would play games with his Atari computer, not Atari Mac. He had an early Macintosh computer that ended up at our house at one point. The Apple II. The Apple II. That's correct. I remember that. I, I many spent many times trying to get that thing working. I know. It was busto by the time it made it back to us. That's why it was given to us, because it didn't work anymore. Ah. Uh, uh, yeah, there were a lot of... I, I mean, we we played... I, I played everything. I, 
I played Pong and Asteroids and Galaga and Centipede and and all those early games would eventually make it in the house. Dad had it in television. I love I, the television cracks me up because it had a voice synthesizer module, and there was this one game called B fifty two Bomber, and it would literally be like B fifty two Bomber, and Dad thought it was the funniest freaking thing in the world. Uh, every time it would do that, and he would go around in his obnoxious voice, going B fifty two Bomber. I'm sure you can imagine him doing that. Oh, it, it it's happened. <laughs> It has happened. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. We had that in television. We had those Nintendos and then it would just it would it would progress from there. Yeah, you came. I mean, obviously, we're more than a decade apart. So you would come later in the PlayStation era, huh? Yeah, that's that's when I was, you know, growing up. I remember playing PS1. I remember us having the original PlayStation. Um, and then the PlayStation 2. <clears throat> Obviously, I remember playing the original uh, Twisted Metals, one of my favorite game series. Like, so much fun growing up. And I really wish that they would play, make them the way they used to. But yeah. we've touched on that briefly in the past. But it's just definitely the, the earliest I can remember before all of that was, like I said, either Final Fantasy. And that's kind of where I, I felt like I started getting into gaming, or it was playing Turtles in Time. We had everything in between. I had the Game Boy. We have an episode coming up on Super Mario Land. I had that. I remember where I was when I beat Super Mario Land. Yeah, we just we didn't have everything, but we had stuff. Obviously, this probably wouldn't be a hobby for me if we didn't. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, we rented a lot of stuff. My favorite thing was going to the video store after school on Fridays. And getting to rent games and then sitting with, you know, my best friends and, and doing nothing else than uh, than playing video games all weekend. Yeah, that lasted uh, through my childhood as well. So thank you. <laughs> it did. Oh, man, we used to stay up all weekend. I mean, and get like no sleep all weekend to play these video games. It... <laughs> oh, you want to eke as much time out of the rental games as you could. You want to eke as much time out of the rental games as you could. That was that was it. Absolutely. I remember Pitfall on the Ataris, Montezuma's Revenge, Mule, Hero. There was this weird flying game where you were on a jetpack called Hero. There's just so many. I mean, I played Zork, which was one of the early text-based games. I just played as much as I could. You would get these floppy disks that would just have games, like titles of games, and you'd be like, oh, let's see what this one is. Oh, let's see what this one is. Let's see what this one is, you know? Mm-hmm. This is a different time. It's weird. I think about it now, and it's really weird how it was like the Wild Wild West. We were getting games on disks that were like handwritten copies, too. You know what I mean? Right. That's uh-huh. interesting. <laughs> and I have no clue where they were coming from. <laughs> that's my part i don't know where these copies were coming from or who Sometimes was making was copies yeah 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 or who was making copies or what we were doing i remember playing wolfenstein in in the school computer lab that was the first time i saw wolfenstein but even before that i saw a one of the early dungeons and dragons like dungeon crawling like text base it was graphical but it was all like ascii you know and so it was a dungeon crawler 
I remember that one. Yeah, God, there's just so much in those early years. It, it It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy just to think about how far we've come. That it is. I'm thankful for it. Absolutely. No doubt about that. I'm I'm incredibly thankful for it. We are very blessed to be living in an era which we're so technologically forward and we have what we have. I mean, we're at VR. They didn't even, th- well, they did think of VR. We talked about that. Some guy thought about VR in a sci-fi novel in the 50s. But I mean, like all these concepts were pipe dreams for people way back in these times we're talking about. And now they're they're legit things that are getting refined and then some, you know? Absolutely. That's cool. I think I've gabbed enough for today, really. I uh I like early video game history. I do. I, I think it's so cool where we came from to where we are now with these just computers that fill up entire labs to gaming in the palm of our hands. Gaming on a watch. You can play games on the Apple Watch. How if we would have explained that to some person back in 1950 something when they were when they were trying to find ways to use these big warehouse computers, they would have looked at us like we were crazy. Probably, yeah. They'd probably be very impressed too. Maybe. Yeah. So what do you think is next? Like we've got all this technology and it's come this far. What do you think is next for us? What's the next jump? Where are we going with all this? You know what I mean? Full body VR, like full immersion, immersion gaming. But I don't know how one would. Obviously, there's great minds thinking of those things, but that seems such sci-fi at this point. Well, the real answer is because you're concerned with the physicality of full motion, right? Well, more so full immersion. So the, the, the feel the taste, the smell, the touch, everything is it's not just like the motion capture or anything. It's it's more of like all of your senses being contained within the game. You'd actually have to have like a neural link to the game in some yeah. way. That's kind of my that. thought too. We're jacking into the matrix, basically. Yeah, that that's one way of putting it, absolutely. <laughs> we are jacking into the matrix. I, I think that when we finally get to that point that you're right, it's going to be a neural link and there won't need to be any physicality because you jack yourself yourself in it and you basically get transported there neurologically to move, live and exist in a world when you're not actually there. It won't be like right now where you actually have to wear a physical device and, and look and move and swing. You'll do it all with your mind. I, I do think I do think we'll get there. Uh, Jacking in the matrix. That's what I'm going to call it. All right. But what if they, what if they use that against us? What if the machines use that against us like the matrix and we just become battery farms for them? Well, it's a risk. Many of us are willing to make for uh, good gaming. All right. I'm good. Anything you want to add to the conversation? Uh, No, I think that you touched on everything very well. Uh, Obviously, I don't know very much about this. So, uh, I can't speak too much to it. So what was great job. What, what was something that you learned today that you didn't know or were surprised by? Hmm. That's a, that's a very loaded question. I mean, just, just one thing that you were like, Hmm, I had no idea. I mean, the, the, honestly, I had no idea that the library of Congress uh, kept video games. 
there you go that's a that cool was, one huh that that's yeah it's interesting i knew they did more than just books but i guess i never really thought of video games as something that they wanted to document the history of like hey, it makes sense i mean obviously we have like documentaries and things about it but i just uh, it never occurred to me yeah we have a game canon at the library of congress thank you congress you're not completely useless you've preserved some of our video games good job here's a pat on the back lame <laughs> oh boy well Speaking of libraries of Congress and 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 uh, finding information, where might someone find some more information about us, Rob? Well, Dave, more information about us can be found at www.memorycardlane.com. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what can they find over at www.memorycardlane.com, Dave? Well, every week I like to post our show notes there, where you can find links to all the um sites that I'd used for my research. And there is a biography of me there, not Rob. If you'd like to know why I go to our website, there is a calendar of upcoming events where you can look at the topics we're going to be talking about uh, in case you'd like to share a story or talk about it or anything like that on those topics are the gaming questions of the week we're going to be talking about. So if you'd like to submit your answers for the gaming question of the week, or you'd like to actually submit questions that will become our gaming question of the week, there are links where you can share everything on our website as well. Also, you will find various links to communicate with us. There are links to our public discord. If you'd like to converse with us and there's a link to our Patreon. Our Patreon is really simple. If you like what you're listening to and you want to be able to contribute to our growing community, you can do so for only $2 a month. And lastly, there are links to our social media. I can be found on Twitter at David underscore is underscore wrong, where I wish happy birthdays to video games and talk about the games that I am playing. Rob, what are you doing on social media these days? I can be found streaming on Twitch, playing the occasional first-person shooter, kind of whatever I'm feeling at the moment. You can find me at twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. Well, I think that'll do it for today. I'm going to take a moment and thank you for joining us at my little history lesson. I really enjoy these delves into history. I, I know it's not the usual uh, dive into a game and, and how to play a game and what a game is is normal. This episode was a little different, but it's fun for me. And I, I really enjoy you joining, joining me. I, I genuinely do. Rob, what about you? Uh, as always, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. We're going to keep doing this week after week until we decide we don't want to do it anymore, but uh, it's a lot more fun having that journey be with all of you. So thank you for listening and you reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Great. So guys, we're going to kind of keep it early history next week, just in a different vein. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking back at the first ever first person racing video game. Nürburgring one. Did I get that right? Nürburgring. Sure. Sure. Nürburgring one. 
Um, as part of the discussion, we'll look at the entire, we're going to kind of be looking at all of the early uh, video game racing history. Uh, video game racing is a genre that I, I, I've spent a lot of time in. Rob, you've, if I'm not mistaken, also a favorite genre of yours, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say I'm uh, pretty familiar with the genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a genre that we both spent a lot of time on. I myself have a lot to talk about with the early stuff. I, I enjoyed playing a lot of the early racing games. And I mean a lot of the early racing games. So I've got some fun stuff for it. And so we're going to be talking about racing games, obviously. You know, for for our gaming question of the week next week, we're going to also have a discussion on our most memorable online gaming experiences. So if you have anything you'd like to talk about, don't forget to pop on our website and join our Discord and give it. But yeah, racing games, racing genre, fun stuff. So if you'd like to join it or listen to us, you can join us again next week. Same time, same place as we take a high octane speed build trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Boom, ba, 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 ba.